Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Micah. Hi, Steph. Hi, Micah. Guess who we have with us today, everybody? We have the infamous Steph Clark. Who is infamous is a bad thing. Wizard. <laughs> oh, shoot. Uh, <laughs> the famous Steph Clark. <laughs> Who is the wizard behind the scenes? <laughs> Absolutely. Steph, so excited to have you with us today. I am excited to be here. You've promised me that this is just going to be a roundup of Bake Off. That's what I'm out here under the pretense oh of. So <laughs> I've, I've been prepared. I've prepared. I literally spent all day watching Bake Off yesterday. That's right. <laughs> I've prepared like, a whole nerd alert about croc en bouche. So. <laughs> oh my gosh, please. Also, I think it's like PSA time that in Australia, you get your bake-off so much earlier than we do here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Unfair. Yeah. Unreasonable. Yeah. Unfair. I'm watching but... old seasons now just to make up for it. Oh, okay. That's the best. Good. But we actually have a lot to talk about today. There's a whole bunch of cool articles and a couple that are a little bit left field. And what's a tease of our nerd alert today? It's a little bit different than usual. Mm. Oh, yeah. For a little tease, I mean, I think Steph's here to definitely participate in that nerd alert. We're going to be talking about lettering versus type design skills, the fundamentals of both those areas, and how the methods, the mindsets of both intersect and also weave away from each other. And I think it's like an important distinction to make because as someone that did type design in the past, I can easily say I prefer lettering over type design, yet they have many overlaps. And what does that mean to do one thing but not the other? So I think it'll be pretty interesting. I think it's good too because it's sort of a secret tease of what our next workshop is going to be, which we haven't announced yet. But I think we're all very excited for that coming up. Sure is. And it's also a nice follow on to a previous episode as well, where we did around lettering versus type design. So this one's, this one's taking it in a slightly different direction. So if you haven't listened to that one, we will pop a link to that in the show notes. You can go back and listen to it as prep for this one. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I like doing like wine pairings of episodes. I know you do that in your own podcast stuff. I think that's so genius. Like some type sommelier. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's jump in. Our first article, I have unfortunately been talking about this all week to anybody who will listen. That's exciting. It's the metaverse. Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. So I was a little unsure if this fit in. You guys assured me that this was in part of the general design conversation. But Facebook is no longer Facebook. It is now Meta, which is a company that claims to be pioneering the virtual reality metaverse, and that's where they're taking the whole darn company. So this article on The Verge is a very long, very detailed article talking with the man Zuck about his thoughts on all that. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised to actually see an article with an interview with Zuckerberg. I think there's a bunch of editorial stuff about it right now a lot of criticism i just thought this was kind of like an interesting angle to hear where it was all coming from how he's dealing with the fact that people think facebook is evil um (laughs) which is a whole different conversation but also thinking about a little bit more about like the creator world that he imagines us all living in which like we could all maybe be participating in i'm skeptical but (laughs) i'm willing to open the conversation (laughs) 
Well, okay, so if you haven't seen all of the news about this and haven't yet read this article or watched the extremely awkward hour-long video that Steph and I watched, Facebook is rebranding to Meta. They're doubling down on virtual reality to try to basically become a leader in an open, decentralized virtual world that they believe is the future, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be really interesting to see how very vocal early adopters like Gary Vaynerchuk or someone like that would be taking this because someone like him is always one of the first people to be like, this is how I'm going to use it and use it to engage with people as well, because that's obviously his thing is connecting with people and engaging with them. So I think that would be really fun to see how people like him and other kind of early adopters are are reacting. But also I think it's cool to see whilst there's, as Olivia mentioned, many problems. (laughs) This is problematic in many ways in terms of Facebook generally, but then also cool to see actually what does the, what is that future vision that they think they're getting on the head of the curve of? I did actually hear Gary V talk about this a little bit. Mm. Uh, Cause you know, he posts on social media 700 million times a day on every possible (laughs) channel at minimum. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And a lot of it, honestly, from what I saw of him posting, you know, I didn't intentionally seek out his opinion necessarily, but it came up and he was like, this is a really wise move. This is obviously the future and it's smart of them to get ahead of it. And he's been a huge proponent of NFTs, which I think there's probably a good reason we haven't talked about on this podcast before, because it's just it's a whole can of worms. Well, and none of us understand uh, it. That's that's the bigger thing. (laughs) That's what I mean by can of worms. Yeah, totally. (laughs) But I have a very cursory understanding of what they're trying to do with that and how that plays into this metaverse, which is essentially that they're trying to make a system where you can buy something online and use it anywhere. Like if you have an outfit that you buy virtually, like in the real world, right? Like you buy the T-shirt that I'm wearing. I wear it. I put it on at home. I go to the grocery store. I'm wearing it at the grocery store. I travel to a different state for vacation, I can bring that shirt with me. And that's what we lack in the virtual world at the moment. Right now, if you buy something in a game on Facebook, it only exists in that little silo. And you can't bring it anywhere else on the web. And so I think the whole point of what they're trying to do is get ahead of that virtual economy by being the place where you buy virtual stuff and by outwardly caring about it being decentralized and portable materials. And I think that's part of what the point of an NFT is supposed to be is like there's metadata when you buy it so that if you move it over to some other thing, that metadata comes with the object and you can tell when you bring it into a new game or something, not that that's physically that possible at the moment, but once they build that in and I have no doubt The point of that is buy stuff from us. Mm. It makes a lot of sense economically to be ahead of that, because if you're like the first place where you can buy stuff, you're going to become the leader in buying virtual real estate. And there is almost no cost in the T-shirt example. It costs money to physically construct the T-shirt. If you're buying a virtual T-shirt for your avatar, it costs nothing and you can charge $30 or whatever the heck you want to charge because there's no alternative, right? Mm. Much better for the environment as well, virtual T-shirts. But the the other thing I was going to say is that it's cool because you know that they're going to have the clout and the bandwidth to create 
that future. The big thing is obviously, do we really need Meta owning more of the internet? Probably not. Like that's the, right. I think that's the thing. Yeah. I think people are spooked just because it's directly leading towards the like science fiction dystopian future that movies make look terrifying. Like everybody's mm. unhappy in the real world. So they sign on to this beautiful virtual world. But I don't know. I, I watched this thing about how this particular name was coined in a science fiction dystopian novel and how basically as soon as that started, there was as much classism in the virtual world as there was in the real world because it's still people running it and corporations and all that junk. So mm. it's a little spooky. Yeah. What about the logo? Olivia, thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly like have not given too much design thought to this brand just because I, I don't am think they of, did. I do. <laughs> yeah. And then someone I saw a really good Twitter post that was like, wow, really breaking through the Silicon Valley blue and upper and lowercase like sans serif. What a revolutionary logo. And I kind of like that it moves. I kind of like the animation. I've also seen some versions of it where they use like different types of digital material to make it up. I think ultimately it's going to be a really flexible 3D animated logo. I think the type is like pretty pathetic, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't hold back. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> I don't know, but like maybe it's fine because it's timeless. And I think Mike and I were saying a few episodes ago about the idea of luxury, having no freaking idea where their future is leading. So they're going as neutral as possible. Like that might be mm -hmm. the strategy here, but like it's not going to be something that... <laughs> I'm going to like applause, you know? Yeah. It's funny because you know there's high paid, extremely skilled and talented designers that Facebook has snapped up, you know? That is where they ended up. Yeah. Did you see, I sent you the LinkedIn post that I found the other day, which I thought was great. And it said, it's like Facebook took the Airbnb logo, applied a little pressure, stretched it like the truth and removed the heart. Oh, wait. Mm. <laughs> which I thought was great. Oh which my was Nerissa Atkinson who said that. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. I always love the witty stuff you bring to us. That deserves stuff. an Ali G snap. <laughs> Insert sound effects here. Nice. All right. I think we spent plenty of time talking about yeah, meta. Indeed. Next link is one that you brought to the table, stuff. It's from It's Nice That. It's actually a little chat that they had with the Sharp Type co-founders, Chantra Malay and Lucas Sharp of Sharp Type. Pretty interesting talk about people behind a foundry, behind a business that is doing quite well. Sharp Type has lots of mm. successful typefaces, it seems, and what it means for them. So I want to hear like what you were attracted to in this talk because I found it quite interesting as well. Yeah, and I think I'm always drawn to more the behind the scenes stuff that's less around the technical, the design of the type. Well, that's obviously interesting. I generally find like, the why they're doing it, the decisions they're making. And I particularly enjoyed in this conversation how they're really attaching purpose and values and really thinking about what that means in running a foundry in 2021 with the various social zeitgeist that exists and some of the sort of issues and things. And then thinking about how do we do our business for good when there are a gazillion different foundries, so many different businesses. How do we do this our way and bring what we think matters and is important into the way we run a business? Yeah. It was like a nice inside look because I bought a license for Aug many years back, which is a beautiful display face. I'm also a big fan of their typeface for Spira Black. 
and thinking about them just like understanding the business structures and talking about that very, you know, in a straightforward manner, but also talking about how they manage their type designers. It's kind of like, I feel like sometimes they forget that foundries will have designers like, you know, under them designing the type rather than just like the person that owns the foundry is the designer and what that means for them and their relationship, which I think is like pretty interesting as like young designers think about that and agree what they said about like the zeitgeist saying that like, okay, so if you're designing type, you're designing what are like visual landscapes going to be in the future. And so there's like a part of people that probably really want to hone down on like, let me try to predict the future trends. But their advice is saying, you know, it's going to be impossible to predict what's going to be like trendy in the future, like find a style, find an aspect of the type that you're passionate about and maybe pursue that instead as a guiding light instead of trying to just chase after trends. Absolutely. And even around then the decisions they make as well around that. And did you know Respira, I didn't know this until this, watching this, that Respira, they actually donate their profits to some good causes that they are affiliated with from Respira, which is great because it's probably one of their, I'd imagine it's quite a popular one as well. Yeah. It makes me want to get a license to it because that was awesome. I haven't heard of a foundry doing like 100% of license money from one typeface going to that. So Mm. definitely very cool behind the scenes inside look. Very good find stuff. Yeah. All right. I think our next one sounds super dramatic and that's why I loved it. This was actually from Macworld, which being a nerd, I follow sometimes. I actually heard about it on Twitter and then found this link. So it says Adobe is dropping PostScript type one font support be prepared for the change. The font apocalypse is coming. And then like one paragraph in, it says, basically, if you've bought anything in the last 20 years, you don't have to think about this. <laughs> Which I thought was fairly funny. Yeah. Micah, are you concerned about this? I mean, I was very much like... No, not in the least. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It was good to know because I saw that and it sounded dramatic that font support was dropping from Adobe. And so I wanted to know what the heck that was. It it felt worth knowing, even though it didn't affect me. But it's basically, you know, like type one is like postscript fonts is a font format that has not been in favor in a very long time. And so that's why they feel comfortable dropping support for it. Basically, if you have any type one fonts at this point that you're using regularly, there's almost definitely a newer version of it that you could probably get just by emailing whoever made the font or at least buying a new version. You know, it's not super consequential, but still a thing that I thought was probably important for everybody to know is happening because I don't know, we do this every single week. I feel like we're pretty on top of the news and I still had no idea that it was happening until some random tweet popped up. So It seemed worth sharing. I think we've also been getting a few people in our inbox actually asking about it in the past year. And I keep on being like, what is this? And then I'm glad I actually like read the article being like, oh, okay. Actually, I think like for me and you, Micah, I feel like, yes, this feels fairly um, not super relevant. But like I think about my dad, which is funny, but he – I did. (laughs) <laughs> he has a family <laughs> sign business. And so actually when I was in like school, he let me borrow a bunch of fonts. They were all in this 
in this font format, I believe, because they were like impossible to figure out how to use. I eventually converted them, but um, like he relies on like a super old collection of digital typefaces uh, for like banks and like very like corporate companies that he makes signs for. I think um, he might be in the clear because as like someone that kind of is a liaison for a printer, like they're not really, you know, uh, on, they don't have to get the license the way that you have to if you're a designer, but like every once in a while he has to have um, one of his production people design something. And I'm sure they're using a lot of these postscript fonts because they went straight from like photo type setting to like the digital world and have been living in a very old catalog typefaces over there interesting mm-hmm. that's a pretty specific niche mm. but linkedin this article is a tool that i used to use in college when i had to convert fonts which is TransType from font lab and it's an app that you know lets you convert font formats really easily so even if that's the case there are solutions linked in this article that are still useful and will continue to be useful I definitely appreciate that. I love that they also mentioned, like, see if you can get upgrades from the foundry. Like, some of these foundries might yeah. still be in business, or they got eaten up by monotype. <laughs> Either way, <laughs> might be worth contacting. <laughs> right, right, right. In any case, it seemed like a useful piece of information that everybody should probably know is happening, even if it doesn't affect you that much. Fair. And we are the reporters of the type and design news of the week, so <laughs> this has to be included. <laughs> Finger on the post, finger on the post of PostScript 1. (laughs) Oh my gosh, love it. All right, Steph, (laughs) you also blessed us with this beautiful article that's coming up next. Mm. It's from Pudding Cool, um, which I think I've heard of Pudding Cool a long time ago, but now they're maybe called The Pudding, as as said on their site. So just like, let us know how you found this article. Very curious. It's kind of like an article, beautiful designed website. I wouldn't even say it's an article, so definitely want to hear more about it. I love the pudding. I basically just chose this so I could declare my undying love of the pudding on on the air. So the pudding, they display information in just such beautiful ways. And the designers uh, and the team of designers they've got or contributors they've got is is amazing. And this particular one popped up. So the reason I found it is because I subscribe to their updates. So I get their updates. And they don't put stuff out super regularly. And you can kind of see why, because... The work that goes into all of them is phenomenal. And some of them are interactive and have all these different elements. And some of them, I think there's one on the pudding that basically will judge you based on your musical taste. So you hook up your Spotify to it and sort of log into your Spotify from it. And then it will send these really judgy messages to you about like, oh, wow, still listening to the Smashing Pumpkins. Like, yeah, I am. That's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think I've seen (laughs) that. I didn't realize this was them. Same, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we... We did this, didn't we, Olivia? Yes, I think you sent this to it. me. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> so, so yes, the pudding is amazing. And I just think as well for anyone who does quite corporate presentation design, visual comms for clients, that kind of stuff where you're reporting information out or anything like that or infographics or anything, looking at sites like the pudding is just, it's almost like the pinnacle of imagine if we could display our information to our clients like this. Now, obviously this has a a significant element of coding and web design in it as well, which isn't necessarily everyone's skill set, which is fine. But I think the concepts as well and, and the typography here is just beautiful as well. I'm not sure actually, Olivia, do you know what this is? The headline one that they've used throughout? There's a few. There's like a very funky one that's on the card game box. I do not know that. It's very psychedelic, though. So I, I bet we mm. could find that if we went into it. But there are subheads 
all in that one oh no font. I think it's oh no blaze face. It is an oh no. I thought it looked like an oh no. I've used it in a logo before. I think it's oh no blaze face. And I love the typographic textures in this design piece. I think they really push some boundaries, aren't afraid to go with something that has a little more personality. And then the way they've done these little typographic illustrations in between just feel pretty special. And I think it helps us all remember to think of like the fun that you could have with type. Mm -hmm. Even on quite qualitative and quantitative data as well, which is what this is. And this is sort of more social information rather than necessarily you know, stats necessarily, but there are some charts and things and stats that they do show in here as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess we should say like the title of what the article mm. we're talking about. Yeah, we're sorry, talking yeah. about the design. <laughs> the design is People very... Like, like, what is it? What is it? <laughs> yeah. So the article is called How You Play Spades is How You Play Life, Spades in the African-American Community. And it's actually a very interesting history, visual and uh, mm. written with really cool infographics in between of like spades history with specifically the African-American community in America and how it started as this game called Bid Whist in the late 1800s and how it kind of has had this evolution throughout decades and kind of where it stands today and how and they surveyed a bunch of people and like different people's you know opinions on the way they played spades and you know it's really interesting I think that the writer too does a really beautiful job of linking it up with spades is this game where things are random and you have to play the, the hand you're given and kind of t links that into its history and it's just like a beautiful article all the infographics like the you can almost call them slides, but they're designed in the shape of playing cards. And it just like makes it really joyful to read. And I think at the very end, there's a question that says, want a physical card deck of this story? Because they're thinking of printing one, which I think is really sweet. That is very cool. Yeah. I'm obsessed. I can imagine if I was working on a web design project, I could see this being in my inspiration. Yeah. Put it on your Pinterest board. Very nice. <laughs> Sorry, wait, do you still use Pinterest? Is that, is that still good? <laughs> I do. Please, you still use Flickr. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> All right, I have no retort. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. It's that time. It's time. It's, it's the nerd alert time. All right, so this nerd alert is a little bit different. We've been playing with the format, right? Here's the thing. We happen to have an expert in our midst about both type design and lettering and so the goal here is to drill olivia with any question that we can possibly <laughs> think of oh my god i'm neither an expert in either one of those but i'm interested in all a master of none so <laughs> <laughs> i think it would be interesting though like maybe we can start with just you talking a little bit about your history with both sure yeah as some people know i started doing type design my senior year in college i like wanted to have a project that involved typography that like i felt like would really push me to some new boundaries i'm pretty sure all my professors in college discouraged us all from doing type typefaces because glyphs wasn't really well known back then so there wasn't like really approachable software they knew of and then everyone all the type teachers were like well you don't even know it is so much work it is so difficult and they conflated to be this thing that was like near impossible I had a really great advisor my senior year so I was able to do a roman to a typeface my first semester and then italic I never like actually finished it to the 255 characters that's a one-day project but 
Anyways, I learned about the process. I taught myself a lot of stuff. I actually really thought I was going to maybe be a type designer when I was working on that. And this is also a story of like me not wanting to become a type designer, which is okay too. (laughs) Um, So I did a little bit of freelance type design after college. And type design is a beautiful practice, but as someone that was also incredibly interested in graphic design and didn't want to give that up as my day-to-day job, I was like, I don't know if I'm like passionate enough about type design to be doing this from my 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. every day because I'd have to like, you have to dedicate a lot of time. So these days I do a lot of lettering because I really, really enjoy making beautiful letter forms and experimenting in that world and biting off less ambitious projects also. <laughs> so I have put my focus towards that. I took a class at Type at Cooper all about lettering, which I think is like a very awesome opportunity that they give students there. And while I'm not, not a master of lettering, I nowadays can like work with lettering artists too in my brand identity work. And that feels like very special and definitely like itches my scratch of like being able to art direct logos and stuff like that from people that are very, very, very good at lettering. So I love lettering. I also like type design, but I don't want to become a type designer. I'm kind of an amateur letter and I'm okay with all of that. <laughs> nice. So you went from type design to lettering. That's correct. That was your spectrum of movement. I thought like maybe I knew something about lettering before I did type design. Like I remember as an intern, I got to do like a little brush script logo and I was like, oh, this is beautiful. I am genius. And then I learned type design and then I learned so much about lettering from type design. It's crazy how a whole like profession is nearly packed into the skills for a whole different profession. It's mm. nuts. That was gonna, ah. So that was going to be my next question is what did you take having done type design and then moved into lettering? What are you like, wow, I'm so glad I did type design first in order to, other than maybe like the anatomy of a letter and stuff like that, like other than that. Yeah, you learn things. You know, we were talking about Nadine was on the podcast last week. We were talking about certain ways to categorize types. So we think about like the energy of a typeface. I don't think I quite understood how you put energy into a letter form until you're literally drafting it with the Bezier curves and experimenting and really just giving a lot of care into like a lowercase a or something. Like, I just don't think that graphic designers, unless they're doing logos a lot, a lot, a lot, are are exposed to that level of craftsmanship that's within like really, really tiny details. And I think like Type design like really teaches you to care about that and then to understand how all your letters are going to relate. So if I letter a word like yourself, the L and the F are going to relate and then the O and the E are going to have similar curves to them too, which like seem obvious, but like until you're drawing things, I feel like the connections aren't necessarily made. And do you now sketch when you've had to do some type design, even if it's not necessarily a whole face, but maybe something for a logo or something that you're maybe making more bespoke or taking an original and an, an existing typeface and adapting? Do you now sketch differently your letters for those typefaces than when than before you did lettering? Yeah, like I'll cheat a bunch. I recently was doing lettering <laughs> for a podcast art, and the way I was doing it, I was trying to get like. I had, I had like a little bit of art direction for this podcast artwork cover. It was kind of a historical story they were telling from the 1800s. And I was like, okay, there's like a thousand ways this can go. We can go like black letter. We can go like flourishy Victorian type. We can go like old school kind of rustic italics from like the 1600s. So I had like a bunch of different iterations and I couldn't spend very long on each of them because I was like, 
I'm going to just waste so much time if I try to perfect everything. So even for like lettering sketches, which I'll do like a mix of by hand and then put it into the computer. For example, your D and your P are the rotation of each other. Automatically, that helps. Or for like E and F, obviously that's a closer one, but even your O and your D I'm just like slicing and dicing my vector artwork and we'll kind of patch it on top of each other for first drafts Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And understanding that and like also understanding that your B is not just a reflection of your D Mm because that's like a common mistake that I would probably have made in earlier days. But really just caring about letter forms can Mm -hmm. kind of help you like shift the way that you create stuff like that. When you're working with other lettering artists, like you said, you said that's kind of become part of the way that you can appreciate it. What are some things that you look for in a lettering artist that you're like, oh, I know they know what they're doing. I know they're good or I want them for some particular reason. I guess I haven't had like super extensive experience with choosing lettering artists, but I think like certainly if you're working on a brand that is really playful, really bold, really one of a kind, trying to break out of the norm, then you're going to try to find a lettering artist that also has a similar style to that too. At some point, like I have a pool of very talented lettering artists slash type designers I'm looking at if we're trying to find a letterer. And it's a matter of whose style could you feel like just seamlessly integrating into this brand. You usually pick out a few people from like a different range. Again, I'm not the person that's going up to the lettering artist. I'm usually just helping in this process. But even for a kid's brand, you might want a lettering artist that's experienced with doing distressed letters or like letters that have beautiful unevenness or imperfections to them that could work for a kid's brand that looks like maybe someone drew the logo with a crayon, but very, very well. And that's perspective that I didn't, I wasn't quite thinking about, I guess, previously. Hmm. I feel like that's interesting. That almost turns into the advice of if you have some unique thing that you want to do. You should do it and put it out there because at some point, some project might match that thing that you really liked and felt like doing and was unique. And you will come to mind if you get it out there. I 100% agree with that. I don't even know if I've personally been approached for this, but I know a lot of lettering artists' advice to other lettering artists is being like, people are going to seek you out if they see something that they're going to want in their work. So if you're practicing, think of where you would imagine your work living and doing something in that genre, which I think is really good advice. I also think lettering artists and type designers are not the jobs that like you know about when you're in high school. They're certainly very niche, but they're also not impossible to pursue as careers. I don't pursue either one of them as full-time careers. And a lot of people that are lettering artists aren't necessarily doing that full-time. But I think brands really care about how their logo marks look like. And it certainly leads to people being really good lettering artists. Like the guy that recently did the Campbell's logo, did the Kleenex logo recently. Um, I feel terrible because I forget his name. But someone is going to get tapped if they do really good work. And you don't necessarily have to be doing type design if you're a lettering artist. And if you're a type designer, you don't necessarily have to be doing lettering. Mm. Lettering has also Mm. a lot to do with composition of a set of words. So I think understanding flourishing is actually really important in lettering, even if you're not doing traditional flourishes just like understanding a balanced negative and positive space within a circle or within like a narrow vertical rectangle which a type designer might not be asked to do is like pretty important to the job and what about for designers who are like i don't have the time or inclination or interest to build two very 
craft skills. As you said, these are both individual, unique crafts that take a long time to master. For designers who are like, I want to use the the mindsets or the skills of a great type designer or a great letterer, what would you say those kind of core principles that then you also now use in your general design work rather than necessarily your lettering or your type design work? Good question. Yes, they are really huge undertakings to become a professional that makes money off of these two skills. But I can promise you that so many people can do them on the side or try to incorporate them in their own design practice. That is a good way to get these skills going. For example, if you're a young designer, you might have a friend that has a project that's a really low budget. And that might be a time where you can say, hey, I'm not the best expert lettering artist. This project isn't going to be seen and criticized by hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, give it a shot. I think you're not going to quite understand the skills until you're really there doing it. I think we have a lot of resources at our fingertips these days, whether I've been on Skillshare to learn more about lettering. I've looked into calligraphy classes to understand a little bit more about lettering. But I definitely suggest that just by doing, you will learn. Or if you even want to just open up a font in Glyphs, if you have a font design software, or even look at the outlines of a font in Illustrator, you can learn so much just by looking at how a type designer drew script letter F. Mm. And I think that can be very infinitely helpful. Yeah. I think just that pairing and also the layout piece that you mentioned, particularly with lettering, is so useful to look at as a designer and just be like, ah, that's how they've paired quite an understated serif or sans serif with something really evocative and expressive as well. And in probably a different way that, you know, it's not necessarily a font because they've drawn it, obviously, but it shows the concept of those things together. Yeah. I actually took Lauren Holmes lettering kind of intro class. I think it was last year. Yeah, it was good. Really good. And you've shared a version or a similar lettering class on the newsletter as well. I did. It is typedesignschool.com. It's incredible that Lynn Yoon got this domain name, first of all. Like, hats <laughs> off. Uh, we're big fans of Lynn. And she created a course last year funded by Kickstarter, which is kind of like a very interesting way to fund an educational program. But it's all online. I think it came out in like the middle of the pandemic. And it is a very, very intense overview of type design. And I know people have used this course to make fonts of their own. I've like seen her talk about it. I also took an eight-week lettering course by Lynn. So I can attest that she is incredibly talented. I also know her from the calligraphy world, but she goes through all of the foundational steps of creating a typeface. But, you know, within here, there's a lot of mention of calligraphy and lettering, because like I said, you have to understand lettering to do type design. I guess certain parts, you have to like understand how to draw Mm -hmm. letters, not like flourishing necessarily is what I said. But I think it's really interesting that you can just learn so much. I'm just very impressed. She used to work at Monotype. She has worked for the big guns before. And I think the way she outlines it makes it really approachable. She understands how to talk to beginners. Highly recommend. But also I think it's interesting you mentioned Lauren Hom. She's been doing lettering for a while. If you look, I don't know if her portfolio still looks like this, but 
I was always able to tell her growth in her portfolio, which I think is kind of a beautiful thing. Her most recent project, she's moved into the culinary. It's like mixing culinary and lettering these days, which is like even Mm. more next level. But like I've even seen in her lettering work improvements over the years. And she's been doing it professionally for a long time. So I think she's really good at the entrepreneurial part of it. And that's how like she pretty sure like she created like a six figure lettering business that includes some of her educational initiatives. But like I said, everyone has to start somewhere. And I think that's actually pretty inspiring. And she's really good at actually showing the kind of the glow up, <laughs> as mm-hmm. I believe the kids are calling it these days, on her, on her work. And actually in the program that I took of hers, she shares a lot of that. Like this is one I did when I was on the train and I was doing the daily dishonesty stuff. And this is what this one looked like. And it's really cool to be like, oh, I can see it's good, but I can see how much better the stuff is five, six. And she shows actually not just year one to year 10, she shows year one to year three, and then year three to year five, that kind of thing. And you really see the progress rather than, and she talks through what changed and how her techniques changed and what she was looking at changed and the inspiration she was, was getting changed as well. So that was, I found that probably just as helpful as the actual techniques you learn in the class. Yeah. Yeah. I find that like incredibly inspiring. Like I feel like Mike and I are always like pressing the people we interview on the podcast. Like what's your like struggles? Because everyone knows that you're really good at what you do. <laughs> so like, where did you start? <laughs> yeah. Beautiful thing. I think that was very informative and really fascinating to hear just like a little bit behind the image of the great Olivia Kane. so funny i will always be down to talk lettering and especially i think i love it maybe more because i don't do it professionally necessarily (laughs) so i can just enjoy it as a thing i enjoy and not have to worry too much about if it makes me my money and pays the bills so that's a beautiful thing that's important yes definitely important to note that this is a tiny preview into something we will be announcing next week on the pod Good tease. And there was one last thing to mention. Yes. Steph and I did, uh, you know, bring this up. We can't really talk about lettering this week without talking about Ade Hogue, who was a very vibrant and loved part of the lettering community who passed this past weekend. You should definitely look up his work. He was like such a talent and gave so much to the community. I have one of his books from many years ago. I've been following his work for so long. It is incredibly heartbreaking and there's no words to describe how a lot of the design and lettering community is feeling, but certainly want to point that out before ending the episode today. Nice work, Olivia. Indeed. Well, I think your insights today were very insightful, my friend. Steph, you should come back far more often. Yes. <laughs> yes. We'll do uh, the for the actual Bake Off episode, yeah? Oh, my gosh. Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Which is continually and forever going to be next week. Yeah, we're going to do that next week (laughs) for sure. Uh Uh-huh. Well, there's actually a big overlap of – did we talk about this? There's a huge overlap of, like, bakers and people interested in branding because I think when King Arthur's branding came out, it broke records on the brand new site or something insane. I remember (laughs) that. We talked about it on the podcast. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That was so funny. Fun fact oh, yeah. to end the episode. <laughs> I'll get it in somehow. We'll get it in somehow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us yet again. And keep your eyeballs peeled on the inbox for that secret announcement that we have hinted at the entire time. <laughs> and otherwise, we will see everybody next flipping week. Doodle doo. Doodle doo.